we're in the last chapter of Peter's first epistle. And what we've seen is that what he seeks to do is to draw out the implications of what he wrote in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 on suffering. He does this in two parts, in verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 11. We've looked at verses actually 1 through 7, and so what I'll do is sort of back up a bit and then we will continue up to verse 11. There are two differences, however, or at least two differences between these two sections, 1 to 5 and 6 to 11. The first is that verses 1 to 5 focus on the life of the church, the community of faith. Verses 6 through 11, which we'll be looking at today, focuses on the place of the Christian in the wider world, that is, outside the congregation. We have seen that suffering does not change our responsibilities. We cannot opt out of our callings simply because we are suffering, and particularly if we are suffering unjustly. We should not imagine that suffering changes the equation. The reality is that if or when we suffer, we are not the first to do so. We are part of a continuing narrative that we see in the Old Covenant that we see supremely in Jesus and continues in the Church. Suffering does not change our responsibilities. However, when one is suffering, when one is in pain, it's hard to think of anything else. It's hard to think of anyone else. It's hard to imagine being without pain. In the first interlude in this section on suffering, in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4, uh, Peter deals with the exercise of gifts in light of community solidarity, partnership, and family. So we are to love one another deeply, show hospitality to one another, and serve one another. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, we have the second interlude. And here Peter continues with our responsibilities, even in the midst of suffering. In verses 1 through 5, within the church, our life within the church. And here he deals with elders and what I will call youngers. Since we have elders, we have youngers. Peter does not write about how many leaders a church should have. He does not tell us how they are to be selected. He doesn't discuss what their duties are. He does say that they are to shepherd the people of God, but what this involves, he does not tell us. Instead, his concern is how elders do their duties. And he presents three contrasts, as we've seen. Not because you must, but because you're willing. Not greedy for money, but eager to to serve. And not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You see, in the midst of suffering, life goes on. There are things that need to be done, and leaders in the church need to lead. I think in this we are reminded, at least I am, of several things. The first is that being a follower of Jesus is not a purely individual thing. And neither is suffering. It is to involve the community of faith. We are the family of God. It was gently suggested to me last Sunday after the service that rather than using the analogy of parents and a family, what Peter's instructions given here, they're actually closer to that of the relationship between siblings and a family. You see, because parents have a sort of an automatic authority, whereas siblings, you have the older siblings and the younger siblings. We've seen that the choice of term for leadership among God's people is elder, which actually comes from the Greek word elderly. And I don't think this is just a title. It is, in fact, descriptive. And I used this last week. I pointed to a sense of informality. 
So much so that when you come to verse number 5 of chapter 5, we're not sure if he means elder as in elder of the church or simply someone who is older than those who are younger. The elders, I think, should be seen as older siblings who are to help with the care of the younger siblings. Thus, their duties are to be seen in that light, not as though they have authority in themselves, but that which is assigned to them by Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. The youngers should be seen as younger siblings who need the guidance of older siblings. The call to submit is not to be seen as in obedience to one's parents, but in fact to follow the example of those who have come before. We've looked at submission throughout this book because it comes up time and time again. And the word that Peter uses is not the opposite of rebel. It is the opposite of the word withdraw. So, so submit is not passive. It is in fact active that we find our place where it is that God wants us to be. And that's where we should be. And we should fulfill our duties there. Resignation is not what he has in mind here. Neither is he calling for blind submission. If he were, then the instruction to the elders would not be in this book where everybody could hear it. It'd be in a separate book, the secret you know, instructions to elders. Here the youngers know that the elders, in fact, are to be examples to them. Now, having said that, just the experience of my own family, uh, I'm the oldest, and so I was supposed to be the elder, but the sister next to me I think for most of our childhood resented that fact. She wanted to be the elder. She wasn't. Um, and she used to tell me, I can hardly wait till you leave home because then I'll be the oldest. And then I'll get the boss people around. Um, we're sinners. We're not perfect. But there is something to be said in a family where the older siblings help the younger siblings and are to be an example to them and to guide them. This, I think, is what Peter has in mind here. And the youngers are to follow their example. And so he says, in the same way, you know, the elders have duties, the youngers have duties, because this is where God has put us. Um, we are born into our family in the order that God chose. And so we have duties commensurate with our position. So that's the first difference. The second difference is in the use of humility or humble between in verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 through 11. And it's actually verse 5 and verse 6, verses that are right next to each other. And so we would be tempted to think that, in fact, Peter means the same thing. In verse 5, Peter writes, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter tells his readers that all of them, including the elders, are to clothe themselves with humility. In the ancient world, one's position was seen in what one wore. And it was not so much, I didn't put on clothing for me to know who I am. I know who I am. It's for everybody else to know who I am. So when I clothe myself with humility, that's not to tell me who I am. That is, in fact, to show others who I am. And that is a follower of Jesus Christ. Peter instructs everyone to wear the same garment. That's a radical thing to say in a society that was so marked by classes. He said, here, all of you wear the same clothing of humility. 
Humility is the way of thinking, of feeling, of acting associated with those who are the lowly. For humility, Peter uses a different word than what he does when he quotes Proverbs 3.34, a much more familiar word. He uses a word that points to a, a framework or a frame of mind, the way that we think, a pattern of thinking. That rather than somehow trying to jockey for position to, to make it up the ladder, socially, educationally, corporately, whatever, we are in fact to put on the clothing of humility. We are not to seek the respect of others by putting on clothing that say, oh, this is who you are. We in fact know who we are. We are followers of Jesus Christ. The notion that all Christians are to wear the same clothing had radical implication in Peter's world. I mentioned several last Sunday, but I will only mention one today. That is how people greeted one another. Due to social status, if you were a slave, you were to avert your eyes. You were not to look at somebody. You were not to make eye contact with them. Whereas on the other hand, if you were at the upper end of things, you would raise your chin. This is who you were, so that people would know who you are. This is to be changed in the church. When we clothe ourselves with the clothing of humility, that our thinking that esteems and honors others. By the way, the implications of this are seen or is seen in the last verse of this letter. Greet one another with a kiss of love. You mean I, who am wealthy, am to greet a slave with a kiss of love? I, who am Jewish, am to to greet a Gentile? Yes, because we are all the people of God and we put on the clothing of humility. go further with this. Humility, oftentimes we see it as the opposite of pride, of sort of self-centeredness, of uh, self-assertion, self-promotion. And there is that. But if we're not careful, we will also see humility in the wrong way as basically shutting down or being numb or just sort of living in denial. Just, no, that's not who I am. I, I'll just pretend to be someone that I am not. We are to embrace who we are. We are people made in the image of God and we are being remade. We are being recreated in the image of his son. And each of us has a place in the community of faith. Each of us has a place in the human community. And that is where we are to live and to do our duties. That's verse number five. It speaks of clothing oneself with humility. Verse number six, however, which sounds suspiciously similar because of the English translation, is in fact quite different. The verb here, humble, is in the passive voice. Here, humility is not a quality of character that one embraces, but rather something that has been assigned to you. That is, that somebody else puts you down. They look at you since you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and they seek to put you down. So the issue is not whether or not we are to be humble. Verse number five takes care of that. The issue in verse number six is how do we respond as God's people when other people seek to put us down and to look at us uh, in a very negative way? 
How are we to respond? How are we to interpret this abasement when people put us down? Peter urges them to accept their humble status. Not simply as the result of the consequence of human rejection, but as the outcome of the, the following of the pattern of Jesus Christ. If we see what they did to Jesus, why would we expect to be treated any differently? Today, I want to back up a bit to verse number 6, and then we will go through verse number 11. And listen as I read, beginning of verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, <clears throat> that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls on like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. The three primary themes that Peter sort of interweaves in this passage that I think we should consider. The first is the situation of Peter's audience, which I would say may include us. As we have seen, the theme of suffering, unjust suffering, undeserved suffering, has been throughout this letter. I would say it is the main theme of this letter. And we have been told of the usual suspects of those who will, in fact, inflict these things. In chapter 3, verse 1, it is the disbelieving husband, who I think in many ways is almost symbolic of all disbelievers. In chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, the pagans who heap abuse on you. In chapter 3, verse 16, those who speak maliciously against you and your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. But now Peter points to someone who is behind that behavior. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The word he chooses to use for devil is diabolos. We're familiar enough with that word. In its original meaning has the sense of slanderer, one who slanders others. And it fits in what we've seen of unjust suffering, particularly in the form of slander, those who slander you. Two things worth noting here. The first is that the use of Diabolus is particularly apt as the primary attack on Christians, as seen in this letter, has been verbal. As far as we can tell from reading Peter, no one has yet suffered physically. No one has been thrown into prison. No one has been crucified. No one has been put to death. The primary attack has been verbal. And so he uses the word devil or Diabolus. There is another name for him, and that is Satan. But Satan means the accuser. And Peter is not focusing on that at this point. It is not that people go around and accuse you. People go around and slander you, just as the devil, Diabolus, one who is a slanderer. And secondly, the devil is seen as the embodiment of evil, a figure who stands in opposition to God, God's purposes, and God's people. In Ephesians 6.11, 
Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. This means that those who oppose God are seen as agents of this diabolos, this devil. And one could argue that the work of the devil is not enacted by him personally, but through persons and institutions that are set against God's people. Persons who insult and slander. Institutions that cause suffering without cause. Here, Peter describes the devil in these terms. Your, devil, or your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It is at this point I find it helpful, and I would remind you, that we would do well to consider that we are to look to Scripture for insight rather than the Encyclopedia Britannica or the Internet. And I say that because years ago I remember someone saying about this passage um, that this points out to how silly and how stupid, if you wish, how foolish the devil is because he goes around like a roaring lion looking for food. Silly lion, if you roar, the food's going to run away, so how will you ever catch anyone? How will you ever trap anyone so that you'll have something to eat? Well, first of all, I'm not sure that Peter's readers were experts on the habits of lions. I don't think they had an expertise in the matter. Not sure that we do either. But secondly, what we do find in the Old Testament is the reference to roaring lions. Psalm 104.21 The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. So there is, I think Peter, I'm not sure that Peter had ever seen a lion, that he ever had expertise in the matter of lions. But what he does is he has the Old Testament and he uses that as a basis. I would point out, on the other hand, though, that in Amos chapter 3, in which we have a series of questions with the expected answer to be no, does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he has caught nothing? Um, Again, I don't think it's a matter of scientific expertise. It is rather the image that comes about. And a roaring lion evokes fear. In fact, in Amos chapter 3 that I just read from, a few verses later, the lion has roared, who will not fear? It is this, I think, that Peter has in mind in this passage. We've already been told that we are to fear God, and by implication, no one else. We can only fear God, no one else. Chapter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. But the roaring lion, this picture of Satan, or of the devil, seeks to create fear. Intimidation. That when a lion roars, no doubt it creates fear. To use the analogy here, whether it comes from the devil or the lion, or from the persons, the institutions who are following his agenda, knowingly or not, we are not to be afraid. If we read carefully, we see that Peter is not merely writing about the communities to whom he is writing this letter, 
But he's writing about Christians throughout the world. If you look at verse number 9, you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. It isn't just these people in these provinces in northern uh, modern Turkey. Um, The church at large is undergoing difficulties. We have seen that suffering is not necessarily the result of personal failure. Suffering is not the result of God's failure to help us, to care for us, protect us, either because he cannot or he will not. Now Peter gives us a wider picture, the matter of suffering, and it puts it beyond merely personal and individual suffering to something that requires a much larger explanation. That's what he gives us in verse number eight. There is a slanderer who is at work. By the way, just parenthetically, this should assure us that this letter has something of value to say to us today, even though we experience great freedom of worship, freedom of religion in this country. uh, Peter still has something to say to us. What we find in verses 6 through 10 is Peter describing the situation of his audience. In verse number 6, they are humbled by others. This is indignity in the social sphere. Verse 7, anxiety or worry. Verse 8, recognition of an enemy of cosmic magnitude. Verse number 10, the suffering of Christians locally. Those to whom Peter's writing. And verse number 9, the suffering of Christians throughout the world. But this is not the end of the story. This is only the first theme. That is the situation of those to whom he's writing. The second theme is the character of God. If all we had was the first part, the description of the situation of his audience, we might begin to lose hope. But Peter tells us of the character of God, and he does so along two very classic Old Testament representations of the God of Israel. God who is the mighty warrior and God who is merciful. Consider what we read of God being mighty and a warrior. Verse number six, God's mighty hand. Verse six, he will lift you up. Verse 10, he himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And then in verse number 11, to him be the power forever and ever. Consider what it says of God as one of mercy. Verse 7, he cares for you. Verse number 10, the God of all grace. Verse 10, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Now, the point is not to somehow separate these two characteristics of God. But rather to show that God can do both. That in the face of the roaring lion, God can accomplish his purposes and he can restore his people. One who perhaps has a stronger vocabulary might create a series of paradoxes or oxymorons. The tender warrior the compassionate fighter. This is what we see Peter saying about God. In the Old Testament, he is the Lord of hosts. He is the warrior. In fact, what Gia read to us from Psalm 24 describes God in those terms. We see this in a sort of a three-step pattern in Israel's history. First of all, God tells Israel when war is coming. And he tells them when it is coming and who they are going to fight. Thus, Israel does not enter into battle, or should not, on their own initiative. They look to God for direction. 
Then secondly, as they go into battle, God is to be in their midst. He is to be present. So they need not depend on more potent weapons, better defenses, superior numbers. In Psalm 33, we hear these words. No king is saved by the, by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all great strength, it cannot save. And then David in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So it is God who tells them this is when the battle will take place. This is who you're fighting. Then secondly, in the midst of battle, God is with them. And then the third step is after they have won the victory, they praise God because he is the one who has won the victory. When Israel was obedient and they won the battle, it was because of the power of God. I would argue that Peter follows this same three-step pattern. He identifies the presence of the battle and the nature of the enemy, as well as the best way to engage that enemy. The adversary is the devil. The weapon of warfare, we'll see this in a bit, resistance. And then we have the presence of God in the midst of battle. The mighty hand, his care and his call. Verse number 10 is is much more detailed in this as it tells us that he is there to restore or supply, to support, strengthen, or establish, to strengthen or empower, to secure or establish. All of these point to the devil's inability to do ultimate damage. But it also tells us of God's intent and capacity to restore and vindicate his people. And then in verse number 11, we have praise. We have the celebration of God's dominion. This dominion would have to imply that he is overpowering. He is the one who will defeat, who has defeated the devil. So whatever the devil may throw at us, that power is overshadowed by the power of God. Now, unless we think that somehow Peter is simply following some formulaic thing you find in the Old Testament... I think, in fact, there's a pattern that he's following that many of the Jews followed that we should keep in mind, and it is that of the Exodus. It is the premier event in the Old Testament. From Deuteronomy, Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people, and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to the place, or to this place, and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So many points of similarity between Israel's confession there in Deuteronomy and what Peter writes. We have the alien status of God's people. They're foreigners in Egypt. The affliction that is visited on them, they are a great nation, but they are a minority and they are afflicted by the majority. And yet God cared for his people in the distress. He intervened on their behalf. We have a declaration of God's power and the divine provision of an inheritance. I mentioned last Sunday that the phrase mighty hand is something we find in the Old Testament. 
particularly with reference to God's delivering Israel in the Exodus. We know how God delivered Israel. How has he delivered, how will he deliver his people, the people of the new covenant? That includes us. Verse number 10, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that God has delivered and will deliver us. What we find in verses 6 through 11 are two different views of the world. The same reality viewed from two different directions. The question is, what do you see and what do you know? On the one hand, the world is seen as a place of suffering, distress and humiliation. On the other, this is not denied that there is, in fact, distress, suffering and humiliation. Neither do we say that Christians are not that Christians are exempt from this, that they don't have to suffer these things. Instead, what we find is that the duration is limited, that it locates all harsh treatment and misery on the map of God's character, God's purpose, and God's power. From this perspective, the canvas of life belongs neither to the Roman Empire, to whom the people Peter is writing to live at that time, nor does it belong to the devil. It is God who will restore, strengthen, empower, and secure. It is God who will vindicate, exalt, and gather his people into his unending glory. The third theme, the first is their situation, the second, the character of God. The third is, how are they to respond? How are we as God's people to respond to this suffering? It is only those who have embraced this way of knowing what Peter spelled out, what's going on. They cannot see the devil. They cannot see God. And yet they're suffering and, and yet Peter is promising God will take care of them. It is only if you have embraced this way of thinking that you can respond as Peter tells us to. And Peter tells us that we are to accept our humble status, verse number six. We are to cast all our cares on him, verse 7. We are to remain vigilant. We are to stay alert. And we are to resist the devil. See, in a society that is bound by patterns of honor and shame, identity is found in terms of relationship. And it isn't that you get to say, this is who I am. It is that other people assign it to you. There is... uh, a vehicle that he and I pass by sometimes on our way to Glendale, which this person has written all various things about himself. And uh, apparently he's a traveling pastor or a traveling minister of some type. And he says that he is a spirit-filled minister. And I, I don't question that, but I think Peter would say that is not for you to say, that is for others to say. That this is, you know, who you are is in fact something that is put on you. Well, stop and think a minute. If that's true, and you're a Christian in the first century, you are seen as some type of loser. You are put down by those around you. What are you, do, what are you to do? The Christians, in fact, were seen as social deviants. Christians were seen as atheists. 
because they only believed in one God and not all the gods that we find in the Roman pantheon. If we are followers of Christ, social humiliation naturally follows that decision. The question is, how will we respond? How do we make sense of this disgrace that is put on us? By pointing to God's mighty hand. By doing this, Peter identifies God as the supreme authority. He is the one who gives us status. So that my neighbors may say of me, you are a loser. You are a social deviant. You are a fool. But it is God, the mighty hand of God, who determines who in fact I am. How do we accept this social disgrace? Verse number seven. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Just as we saw in chapter two that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Just as we saw in chapter three, verse five, that holy men or holy women put their hope in God. Just as Peter wrote at the end of chapter four, commit themselves to their faithful creator. Now he tells us as God's people to allow God to be God by casting our cares, our anxieties on him. When we do that, what we are saying is that God alone has the monopoly of justice and that God alone can accomplish his purposes. You may remember the words of Jesus as found in the Gospels. This is from Luke chapter 4. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. The devil does not have ultimate power. He may be able to kill us. As Martin Luther said in his hymn, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. Only God has ultimate power. The question is, why do I suffer if God has ultimate power? Stop and think of a minute the passage I just read from Luke chapter 4. Why would one buy five sparrows for two pennies? Why did people back in the first century buy sparrows? Well, let's back up a bit. If God cared for the sparrows, why did the sparrows get caught? If God cared about them, they shouldn't have gotten caught. Well, they were caught and now they're going to be sold. And what do you do with sparrows? You eat them. Wait a minute, Jesus. You said that God cares about the sparrows. Yes, but God's care for them does not keep them from being caught and eaten. And so also God's care for his people does not, it is not voided when somehow we suffer, when we are put in danger. Like sparrows, we may suffer calamity at the hands of oppressors, not apart from God's attentiveness. God knows who we are and he cares for us. 
What we suffer may not, will not be outside his care and will not be in a way that outwits his purpose. For Peter, and we should learn this, God's restoration comes through suffering. Okay. God does not take us away from suffering. It is through suffering that God restores us. Much easier said than accepted. Two times already in this letter, Peter has urged vigilance. In chapter 1, verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled. Chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. So when we come to verse number 8, be self-controlled and alert, we're going to say, well, okay, you're repeating yourself, Peter, you know, we've already heard this before. But there is something new here. He says that we are to be alert. I think this points to the importance of accepting and adopting God's view of things. How God sees things. And patterning and living our lives in ways that account for both the presence and the reality of evil, as well as the certainty of judgment at the end of time. With that in mind, we come to the final imperative of our response it is perhaps the most familiar part of First Peter. We are to resist him. We are to resist the devil. Near the beginning of this series, I mentioned that there are several temptations to those who are suffering and those who are undergoing persecution. The first we've talked about at length, and that is to question your status before God. Maybe I'm not a child of God. Maybe God's angry with me. Maybe God can't help me. The other temptation, though, is to assimilate or to defect. It's to go over to the other side. You used to be on the other side anyway, as Peter says at the beginning of chapter 4. You used to do these things, and now you don't, and your neighbors are like, what's wrong with you? And now they heap abuse on you. The temptation is to say, okay, I'm not going to go against the grain anymore. I will simply go back to the other side. I think it is this that Peter has in mind here. The idea that we might, in fact, defect. We might go back. We might embrace the dispositions and practices of the culture around us. James writes about this in his letter, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If some people think that submit is too passive then resist sounds way too active. For some, it seems like it means attacking. You know, the best defense is a good offense. But what James has in mind is that we are to man the defenses. We know that there will, in fact, be an attack. It will be unrelenting. We are to stand firm. And this is what we hear from Peter as well. We are to be alert. We are to stand firm. What Peter writes is important for at least two reasons. First of all, the, de the devil's desired outcome would be that we would all defect, that we would all go back to the other side. So he writes in verse number nine, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Standing firm in the faith means, in part, a refusal to revert to the ways of life that we used to live in. 
and that still characterizes our neighbors. It means, in part, a resolve to practice holiness in our living. Let me read to you from chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. We are to stand firm because it is the devil's desire that we, in fact, would go back to where we were. That we would assimilate, we would defect, we would go back to where we used to be. And Peter says, be alert and stand firm. The second reason I think why this passage is important is because by naming the devil as our adversary, Peter attributes a source of suffering to the devil rather than to the flesh and blood people we come in contact with every day. Those who may slander us, those who may persecute us. You see, the battle is much larger than we might have previously imagined. And this puts our persecutors, those who hate us, in a different light. It's not to say that they're not responsible. It's not to say that the devil made them do it, and so therefore they have no moral culpability. Now, we've been told about judgment several times in this letter. Condemnation is coming if they do not repent. But by writing what he does, we see from Peter that those who slander, those who persecute God's people, are involved in a plan that is bigger than they had imagined. They're not even aware of the fact that they're part of a larger scheme. They simply think that they are having a little fun, that they are maybe embarrassing or putting us down, mocking us. Peter lets us know there's actually something much, much larger going on than they know, but now we know because he has told us this in his letter. From a human standpoint, it might seem to be shaming, humiliating, persecuting those who fail to live up to the standards of society. The pagans may say, you're a loser. This is the standard and you're way down here. And mock us. That, that does hurt. No one likes to be rejected or to be mocked. But there's something else, much darker, much more powerful behind the scenes who has the goal not simply to embarrass us or to harass us, to persecute us, or even to kill us. He has something even bigger in mind, and that is to get us to turn our backs on God and to go back to the way we used to live. What is at stake is much more than social standing. It is our standing before God. So in these verses, as Peter weaves these three themes together, for me, it is the mighty hand of God. God who cares for us. That should be where my thinking is. As I face difficulties, as I want to know how should I respond? Well, Peter's told us all this. These three things weave together. But it is who God is ultimately that saves the day. It defines who we are. 
not my neighbors, not those who hate us, those who think that we're perhaps intolerant because of our views. It is God who determines who we are. The Lord willing, next week we will end First Peter as, Paul, as Peter draws his letter to a close. I think he has some important things to say. Let's pray together. Father, we are human. We want to get along with people. We want to be liked. We do not like to be mocked. Have people lie about us. Have people laugh at us. But this should not surprise us, as this is what we see in the lives of your people and in the life of your Son. But help us to see that there is something else going on. There is that power that desires that we would turn away from you. That we would take the path of less resistance. We would go back to the way of the world. I think if we would be honest in little ways, perhaps big ways every day, we do this. If not for your mighty hand, if not for your mercy, all would be lost. But it is because of your great grace that we are your people and that we remain your people. May we by your spirit come to understand this passage and put it into practice in our lives to realize and to remember there's something really big going on here. And we are to stand firm in the faith by your grace. May we by your grace be gentle people, respectful people, even in the face of slander. And may we look to you for meaning and status and not those around us. I thank you for this wonderful passage from Peter. May your spirit apply these words to our hearts. We pray for our sister Rosa as she travels this week. Going to London to be with Yachmi. Pray that you would give her safety and we give thanks for the years that Yachni has put into her education and now she graduates with a master's. It's a testament to your grace. We thank you for it. Watch over them as they are together and bring Rosa back to us safely. For those that are traveling and aren't with us today, we ask that you would also bring them back to us safely. We're so grateful for those who have come back. Now we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.